All right, are we good? Let's roll. I'm Russ McQuaid, and this is Indie Justice. Season one. It begins with Angie Barlow, a young Indiana woman from a college town. Her family says she wasn't cut out for higher education, but she learned a lot in a life that was cut tragically short in Indianapolis. It took nearly a month from the time she disappeared in the fall of 2016 for the rest of the city to notice, as we reported on Fox 59 News. The nightmare started on October 26 when Angie went out with some friends to a party and has not been seen since. She just said, moms, I don't want you to freak out. She said, but I think we have a problem. She said, sis didn't come home last night. Detectives found 23-year-old Angie Barlow's body buried behind a home on the city's northeast side yesterday afternoon. There is a complete emptiness. It literally feels like somebody just reaches into your chest and pulls a piece of your heart out. And tonight, this missing persons case is now a homicide investigation. I believe I know who did it, but I don't know who killed her. Or I believe I know who killed her, but I have no proof. She's not just a number. She's not just a statistic. She was my daughter. In their own way, they're just trying to entertain people and make money while they're doing it. But it's, it's nothing that they should have to die for. And she said, oh, you want to know what her last words were? I want justice for Angie. I want justice for all these girls. This episode of Indie Justice contains strong language. It was a few months ago I started receiving some disturbing inquiries from our viewers in Indianapolis and some tantalizing speculation from cops. Was there a serial killer working the east side of the city, murdering young women? I keep a fat file on the left-hand corner of my desk in the Fox 59 newsroom. It's within arm's length for easy reference. It's full of police reports, coroner's findings, press releases, probable cause affidavits, details about every murder in Indianapolis, and even some other suspicious deaths. Next to it is another pile of paperwork, phone messages, emails, letters from prison, notes from home, every one of them asking me to look into an unsolved murder or a cold case homicide. Every day I read these files enough so eventually all the names begin to stick in my mind. So that when the mom of a slain woman from the southeast side told me her daughter's story and about all the other dead relatives and friends she knew, I wondered who and what's killing the young women of Indianapolis. It begins with Angie Barlow. It was a dry day and a wet spring when I went to a park on the south side of Muncie to meet Angie Barlow's mother, Christina Kramer. Did she ever come to this park when she was a kid? Yeah, she came here several times. And um, her best friend's sister just lives right over there, too. So she uh, she did. She spent a lot of time over here. Angie was born in Denver, Colorado, and we had moved back to farmland when she was about almost two and then uh, end up moving to Muncie shortly after. We have four, four daughters, 
Four girls. <laughs> Where was she in the pecking order? She was the oldest. Okay. So she was the queen bee. Oh, yeah. She was queen of the roost. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so what was it like being the queen of the roost for three other girls in your house? Uh, they they all looked up to their sister. She was, she, was, uh, she was like little mama to all of them. Angie lived with her family in a little house wedged between an open field and a church perched on the edge of a massive blacktop parking lot. The day I went to Christina Kramer's house, there were two cars parked on the gravel out front with stickers in the back windows that read, in memory of Angie Barlow and hashtag bring Angie home. Our visit was almost two years to the day since Angie's body was found. She went to Southside High School. How far did she get? Uh, she actually dropped out her senior year um, with about two and a half months left to go. How did that happen? because um, I had had baby sister. Um, Angie was a very headstrong, stubborn, independent young lady. Um, she, uh, she wanted to do things the way she wanted to do things, and she didn't like that there was rules after she turned 18. And, you know, part of the rules was you need to be home by this time, you're still in high school. And she didn't, you know, she didn't much care for that, so she moved out. But me, you know, being a mom, I just, all I wanted for her was for her to get that high school diploma. I was, I was really frustrated with her over it too, um, because she knew that was, you know, I, I always told her if you never do anything, at least have that high school diploma, you need that. Um, all through middle school she did sports and she was an amazing athlete. Um, she, she did the shot put in track and field. She broke her own school record five times. Um, you know, she played travel softball, and there was teams around the state that wanted her to come and catch for them. She was an amazing catcher, and she was an amazing batter. I, there wasn't a sport the kid couldn't do. Um, basketball, she was a school hoop shoot champion. You know, she hit 44 free throws in two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then uh, bowling, she bowled all through high school. And um, she went to state with her team three out of the four years that she bowled, I do believe. And she's actually in the Bowling Hall of Fame for a star of yesteryear for her accomplishments really? through high school. What was it that at that point, you know, made her decide that I don't have to do this anymore? It was, I think it was a little bit of everything. So she, uh, you know, all through, I kind of felt a lot like maybe it was my fault because all through middle school I pushed her, you know, and it was like, okay, you need to do this. Stay focused on this and you know I pushed her into the sports and because you know I, I seen how good she was at things and I wanted her to know how good she was at things and um, you know making her keep her grades up and then she went to high school. So Angie's going on 19. She quit high school with just two and a half months to go to get a diploma. I mean she can see the goal line from here and she just walks off the field and quits. Suddenly, she's a young woman in Muncie, Indiana, with an 11th grade education and in sore need of a plan B. So's her BFF, Tracy. And after a little bit of time out on their own, they both move back into Christina's house, but with a hard and fast rule that if they violate it, it's a deal breaker. Christina says, get your GED, a general equivalency diploma, or you got to go. I said, I want you guys to make something of yourselves. I want you to do something with yourselves. And so they did. They went and got their GEDs. <laughs> and, and they both thanked me later for it too. <laughs> 
So she makes it down to Indianapolis. What type of jobs does she get when she uh, arrives? When she started dancing, when she moved to Indy. Okay. And you were probably thinking, well, I said get a job, but I wasn't thinking that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it. I mean, yeah, obviously, how I don't think any parent wants she? that. Um, she was 23 when she was murdered. Well, how, how old was she when she, she got was, there? Uh, she was almost 19 when she moved down there. So what is that phone call like between a teenage daughter who last time you saw her when you packed up the car goodbye honey good luck in indianapolis tell me when you get a job and then she calls you back call her long later and you go did you get something and you said <laughs> yeah i'm dancing at club rio how does that conversation go on um she never really brought it up we just kind of figured it out <laughs> pretty easily <laughs> but um you know and and I told her, I said, isn't there anything else you can do? You know, I said, there's, there's other jobs that you can make money. You don't have to dance. And, uh, and unbelievably as it was, she actually liked what she did. She, she wasn't one of the dancers that had to go out and get drunk or, you know, be doped up to get out and do what she did. She just, she did it because she liked it. But we hated it. <laughs> I mean, absolutely despised it. She, um, well, she, she would do pole competitions, and at some point she even started teaching pole classes, pole dancing to people, which, you know, was something that she had actually talked about starting her own business up and doing that. Because I, I guess a lot of people like to take those classes. I didn't even realize what a big thing it was <laughs> until I'd heard about it from her. she make a good living doing it? Yeah, she did. She did. She uh, she never asked us for a dime. She um, she paid all of her bills. She made her car payments. Um, yeah, she took vacations. She traveled, and she she did it all herself. Did she ever talk about her concerns of it, or at some point did she ever just go, eh, I'm getting burned out on this, anything like that? Um, she was there um, at the end. You know, she had discussed with uh, some people, and she had talked to us about it as well, um, going into finance. Did she ever express to you concern, or could you ever sense that she was, while she was maybe talking about getting out of it or own her own business, that she was less than enthusiastic with the types of people she was either working with or meeting? Yeah, yeah, she, she had expressed a lot of concern about some of the people that she had came across, you know, doing, doing what she did. Um, but she would also say that she understood what she did for a living and she knew that she was gonna run into people like that especially in her line of work. And here's where the connections begin to get a little weird. This is why I call this story, It Begins with Angie Barlow. Angie's a young woman with a GED who attended a couple classes at college but left Muncie because her options were limited and her dreams took her somewhere else. With her girlfriend Tracy, Angie heads to Indianapolis and both women start dancing at a West Side strip club called Club Rio. Club Rio became notorious a decade or so before for a shootout involving a handful of players from the Indiana Pacers that left a young millionaire's Bentley punctured with bullet holes. At Club Rio, Angie met some other young women, a girl named Casey Kern and another one named Raven Miller. 
So she knew a girl named Casey. Well, you obviously never got a chance to talk to her about Casey, but what do you gather was like the friendship between Casey and, and Angie? I, the way I take it, they were they were kind of acquaintances. Um, I, I, I believe they hung out a time or two. Casey Kern's sister was Mariah Kern, who was found murdered a year after Angie's body was discovered. Her case is also unsolved. We'll tell you more about her killing later. In October of 2016, Christina said Angie took a vacation to Florida, came home, and she said she needed some money. Angie had received an invite from an anonymous text message offering to pay her $500 to dance at a private party in an apartment complex on Indianapolis's northwest side. It wasn't the first time she received the message, but it was the first time she took up the offer. At what point do you become aware of the fact, is it just, hey, I haven't heard from Angie for a while, or do you become aware of the fact that there's a problem? I immediately, um, her her best friend, who she, she lived with as well, um, Tracy, who lived with us before, she had gotten a hold of me on October 27th, and she just said, Moms, I don't want you to freak out, she said, but I think we have a problem. She said, Sis didn't come home last night. And she said, I'm really worried, and I don't know what's going on. And then she had sent me the, the screenshot of the text message that she had with Angie, the, in, case you, in case I go missing text message and Tracy had sent me that. So that night Angie sent a message to her friend. This is where I'm dancing in case I go missing. LOL. Well it's kind of an eerie ironic thing to say or is that indicative of her sense of humor that she would say uh, something like that? Uh, kind of yeah yeah that was something that um, I believe that she had done before you know hey in case I don't come back you know this is where I'll be or you know just letting people know letting somebody know where she's going to be um, but not really putting too much into it. Christina's seen her daughter's in case I go missing text and there was also a Snapchat message at 11.45 p.m. on the night of October 26th from Angie, indicating she was at the party and everything was going fine. Christina thinks the Snapchat selfie was shot in the bathroom at the apartment where Angie was dancing. There was a smile on her daughter's face. That's the last time anyone ever heard from Angie Barlow. Tracy called me October 27th. Um, I called the police station October 27th, and I had asked them how long do I have to wait to file a missing persons report. And they told me that you don't have to wait a certain amount of time. They said you can file one at any moment. And I said, okay. And um, I, I started off by, you know, I just freaking out. I'm calling the hospitals. I'm trying to find her. I'm calling. Um, her friends. I keep calling her phone repeatedly. I'm calling um, tow companies. Even as much as it killed me, I called the morgue. Um, I was calling jails. I was calling everything I could think of. I even called the phone number to the person who seen her last. That would have been with the, uh, the text messages? Yes. Did you ever get an answer? Yep, yep. 
she had called me back um, and she said this is she's like this is Nicole did you call this number and I said yeah I'm looking for for Raven she said well this is Raven Raven Miller was a dancer Angie knew from Club Rio Angie knew Raven's boyfriend too she said well this is Raven and I said okay I said I'm looking for my daughter where is she and she said, well, who's your daughter? And I said, Angie Barlow. And she said, well, I don't know who that is. Angie went by a stage name of Diamond. So I said, well, how about Diamond? Does that ring a bell for you? Do you know where she is? And she said, oh, yeah, 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 Diamond, Diamond. Yeah, I know who that is. She said, no, she left here last night. So Raven Miller admits to Christina Kramer that she saw Angie early on the morning she went missing. But Miller says she just doesn't know where Angie went. She says she left about 3 o'clock in the morning after she got a phone call. And so I continued to try to get a hold of Angie. Um, still never got a hold of her. And so I went down to file a missing persons report. While there's no time limit that you have to wait to file a missing persons report, there are vacations for detectives. And Angie Barlow's case sat on an investigator's desk untouched for four days. Another detective um, had picked it up and then she immediately started looking into it. Um, we had told them that we went to where she was last seen at and that they did have video surveillance, but they wouldn't let me have it and they wouldn't let me see it because I wasn't, I wasn't an officer. How did you find out where the last place she was at? We had the address. From the text message. From the text message. Yeah, those, yes. those apartments. Yes. Okay. So now you've handed IMPD, you know, some information. Hey, if you go to this address, you're going to start finding surveillance video. Here's Raven's phone number. And you've got a, a female detective that picked the file up off of somebody else's desk. Is that when, you know, at least some sort of progress starts being made? Yes. What do you find out? Um, it, it was a little while later before we actually found too much out um, with her car was actually what was found next. Okay, understand that it wasn't until the middle of November that anyone outside of her family really learned that Angie Barlow was missing. And this is how Indianapolis found out on Fox 59 News. IMPD officers recently found 23-year-old Angie Barlow's car around Indianapolis, which could be a huge break in this missing person's case. Tonight, though, her family is taking the search into their own hands. Tonight, investigators remain tight-lipped, but detectives with IMPD's missing persons unit know as more time passes, the urgency increases. You just keep hearing her voice saying, help me, mommy, help me, mommy. Bella. That's what keeps you going. With a little bit of help from the finance company, IMPD found Angie's car eight miles away from the apartment complex where she last danced. Angie's blue Pontiac G6 was trashed, like someone had been really mad at her. Well, when you find your daughter's car but you don't find your daughter, you start going, okay, this isn't looking good. Yeah. What do they find in her car? Um, that we still don't know everything that was found in her car. Um, she was never in the trunk of her car. Um, they, they had a tip that she may have been in the trunk, so when they got the search warrant, they were able to open up the trunk and find out that she wasn't in there and she was never in there. Um, 
and just knowing um, everything that we ended up finding out, we know that she never left that apartment in her car. Her car left without her in it. Somebody drove that car? Somebody did drive that car. We did know that they did find prints, but we don't know whose they found. Police searched Angie's car, but they didn't find a lot of evidence. They do have, however, surveillance video from about 3.30 on the morning of October 27th. Now that's nearly four hours after Angie's Everything's Cool Snapchat selfie. And on that surveillance video, they spot the missing woman's car leaving the apartment complex, followed by a black sedan, a car owned by that other dancer, Raven Miller. When IMPD talked to the people at the party, Christina has been told their stories didn't match up. They had said that Angie left at a certain time, but they didn't go anywhere. Um, yet, when her car left, was at a different time than what they said. Um, they didn't go anywhere, but her car follows Angie's car out of the parking lot. Um, you know, maybe they didn't go anywhere, but somebody took their car somewhere and followed right behind our daughter's car. And our daughter wasn't in her car. So somebody drove her car, somebody drove the suspect's car. And other than that, we're not really too sure was she who was driving which vehicle. Was she in the suspect's car? No, she wasn't in the suspect's car either. Then where was she? Um, she was put into a different vehicle. Angie Barlow was apparently driven away from the apartment complex in a vehicle that wasn't hers, and it wasn't Raven Miller's. It would take IMPD a long time and a cross-country journey to track that vehicle down. Sure seems like there would be a lot of people around because it's going to take a lot of people to yeah. move a lot of cars around. Yeah, and the, the day, a day or two after she went missing, her best friend Tracy actually went to the apartment. Um, looking for her and when she looked in the windows of the apartment it was completely cleaned out there was no furniture there wasn't anything in there if there's three cars involved how many people do you imagine were involved in the last four hours of her life um, at the very least two um, but we would have to assume probably three and probably a whole lot of others. Because somebody had a real bad idea that night yeah, and carried it out, but if you involve that many other people in it, there's that many more opportunities for the information to leak out and sometimes you, you bring in too many people yeah. involved in this deal and there's too many people out there and there's too much information that could be floating around. Do you find yourself just like on a weekend you're so frustrated you got nothing to do just going down to Indianapolis and driving we around? We went to Indianapolis um, religiously. It, it was every weekend, it was three, four times throughout the week. I mean, we were constantly there. We were everywhere. We were following up on leads ourselves. I mean, we handed everything that we got over to IMPD, um, but we wanted to know too. And we would have people call us. You know, of course, we would give them the information, um, but we would also go out and check ourselves too. 
Of course, the whole time you're doing it, you're thinking, you know what, we're going to drive down the street and she's going to see my car and wave me down on a corner. That's how we're going to figure this out. We kept hoping. We kept hoping. <coughs> yeah, we'd, we'd go to abandoned houses that, you know, people would call about. We would go in, we would look around. You know, we were going to houses that weren't abandoned, <laughs> looking around. Um, we were we were trying to do everything we could to find our daughter. Tips about abandoned houses? That's interesting. So what types of tips were you getting? Um, we were getting a lot of, um, hey, I seen your daughter, she's at this place. Um, we had, it, it was almost like Angie spotting. I mean, it was, people would call, they seen her at Walmart, they seen her at gas stations, they, um, we even had ransom demands at points in time. Um, and uh, we had those probably, probably about three or four different ones. They had sent us pictures that were obviously photoshopped. Um, it was, and I, I knew the exact picture as soon as I seen it because it was one of my favorite pictures ever. And she's smiling and uh, they had put her in, they had photoshopped Muslim garb, Muslim garb on her. And, um, they sent it to me and telling me that she's being held in captivity and she's miserable and being drugged up and all I could say is why is she smiling? <laughs> and you know they're they're telling me that they're going to blow her up and scatter her body over you know thousands of miles and it, and it was it was ridiculous. Um, I remember us asking the missing persons detective, Detective Burton, um, we had just flat out asked him, do you think she's still alive? And because we did, you know, we, we never gave up hope that she was alive. And um, he said that everything that he had at that point in time still indicated that she was alive, that there was nothing proving to him that she was gone. During the next eight months, IMPD missing persons detectives kept working the case, grilling Raven Miller and her boyfriend about what went on the night Angie Barlow disappeared. The cops, knowing what they knew and suspected, but unable to prove it. There was even a false lead that traced back to Angie's hometown of Muncie and a dude who called himself Machine Gun Shake. There was a, a, a huge thing that she possibly could have been sold into human trafficking um, because of a lot of evidence that they had and people that had made different phone calls. And um, there was a, a known um, trafficker in prison who had actually made a phone call about Angie at one point, which, I mean, that in the end, that turned out to be nothing. But um, at the time, you know, it was something we had. It was something we could go on. Did you ever talk to Raven again? Yes, I did. Remember, Raven Miller answered the phone the day after Angie disappeared when Christina called the number the private party dance invitation came from. She called me in January of 17. I was sitting in a training class for work and my phone rang. And of course I had a missing child. Every time that phone rang, it was, it was answered. And um, she told me who she was and 
she actually went in to tell me what a great person she was and what wonderful things she does and things she owns and how much money she has and you know definitely thought highly of herself and did you tell her what you thought of herself no i wanted to <laughs> did you ask her again where's my daughter no because i knew she wasn't going to give me a straight answer and half of what she over half of what she said i knew everything was lies um, she was trying to convince me that when Angie first went missing that she was, she had, after that, she had gotten sick and went to the hospital and she didn't go missing herself, but we knew where her and her boyfriend were. They had left Indianapolis for a little while and went and stayed with some relatives somewhere else. Think about that. What would you say to the person who you know in your heart knows what happened to your missing daughter? Why are they calling you? What would you expect them to say? Sometimes when the suspect calls up, they're also pumping you for information yeah. to find out what you know, and they're trying to keep tabs, and so yeah. they go. So it's a real cat and mouse game where you make a move, and they make a move, and then you make a move, yeah. and then they make another move, or they put a feint out there to see if you're going to bite at it. Yeah, I, I even gave her the good old, if you need anything, you give me a call. And <laughs> But I, the minute she called me, I knew, um, especially when she had made a comment, because I had asked her, I said, what did you and Angie talk about? And she said, oh, you want to know what her last words were? That was her exact phrase. Oh, you want to know what her exact, or you want to know what her last words were? Why would somebody make a comment like that if they didn't know something. I'm assuming you were either stunned or you didn't want to let on what a stunning thing it was, so you kind of played dumb and said... Yeah. Just on a sidetrack here, you've dealt with people who have demanded ransoms and have photoshopped your daughter's picture in a burqa. You've talked to the woman who set all this up and she says, you know, you want to know what your daughter's last words were. You've already turned yourself into an amateur detective. It would also appear that you have gotten like a master's degree crash course in uh, criminal psychology. <laughs> what have you learned about people that are involved in something like this? Um, you just you just don't trust anybody. You really don't. Um, you, it, it's almost like we've learned how not even to have emotions anymore. You know, there, there was a lot of things that, you know, our head would tell us one thing, but, but our gut was saying, no, 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 you know, or, you know, and I've, I've always been one to trust my instincts. What were your instincts the day you got the phone call and they said, hey, why don't you come down to the east side of Indianapolis? We think we might have found some. At its core, this is a story about motherly instincts, what moms know in their guts about their kids. That day, when Christina Kramer's motherly instincts would once again need to kick in, was June 20th, 2017.
This is what Fox 59 viewers heard that day. Police haven't released the victim's name yet, but again, our sources do tell us that this investigation is likely connected to the October disappearance of 23-year-old Angie Barlow. Her family tonight, including her mother, are hoping that that's not the case. I remember, you know, Detective Burton, he said, Mrs. Kramer, I said, yeah, he said, we need you to come down to the Marion County Coroner Office. Um, he said, I, I think we found Angela. He said, in fact, I'm almost positive we found Angela. The search for Angie Barlow was over, but the hunt for her killers was about to kick into high gear. Why did somebody want to kill Angie Barlow? Well, there are a couple theories out there. In the beginning, we started with a question. Is there a serial killer preying on the young women of Indianapolis? Our investigation didn't result in the answers we were expecting, but sent us off in a direction of something that might be more random and even worse. Young girls dropping dead left and right. Nobody gives a shit. I want justice for Angie. I want justice for all these girls. Coming up, on episode two of Indie Justice, it begins with Angie Barlow. A homicide detective uncovers a secret and names names. Were there people there that night that would know this? I believe so. Yes, there are other, I guarantee you there are other people in it. While a mother grieves and pushes on. Do you ever hear Angie's voice? I do. I do. And it always says, Mommy, don't give up. And I won't. I'm Russ McQuaid. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time for Indie Justice. Indie Justice is reported by Russ McQuaid and produced by Greg Margeson, Maureen Caruso, and Mallory Wheel. Maverick Atterbury is our editor. If you have information on this story to report, you can submit a tip to Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS. We'd love to hear feedback and story suggestions from you. You can contact us by emailing IndieJusticePod at gmail.com or tweet us at IndieJusticePod. Find more content, including an interactive timeline, at Fox59.com slash IndieJustice. Justice.